Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Peter Fitzsimons, AM, is Australia's best-selling author of non-fiction. His books include biographies of iconic Australians, including Ned Kelly, Douglas Mawson, Burke and Wills, Charles Kingsford Smith, and Nancy Wake. His books also cover some of the seminal events in Australia's white history, including the military campaigns at Kokoda, Gallipoli, Fromel and Pozier, and the Eureka Stockade Uprising. But today I'm talking to Peter about his latest book, The Incredible Life of Hubert Wilkins. Peter, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Greg. When we think of great Australian explorers, names like Burkham Wills, Blackslin, Lawson and Wentworth, Matthew Flinders and Douglas Mawson inevitably come up, why wouldn't we think to include Hubert Wilkins mm. on that list? It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you stopped 100 people in George Street, Collins Street, St George's Terrace, wherever, you and said, who is Sir Hubert Wilkins? Most, I put it to you, wouldn't know. And yet my wife about 20 years ago caught me looking at a $100 bill and she said, I know what you're doing. I said, what am I doing? She said, you're looking for your next biographical subject, aren't you? <laughs> and, and she was absolutely right because, you know, in terms of famous Australians, I like doing stories on iconic Australians, but, you know, Sir John Monash, Charles Kingsford Smith, I've done them and I've really enjoyed them. But Sir Hubert Wilkins had, with the greatest respect to, um, Douglas Mawson is another one, with the greatest respect to Douglas Mawson, with the greatest respect to Sir Charles Kingston Smith, um, you know, notable notable men who've seen new, new horizons that nobody had ever seen before. Neither of them got close to what Wilkins did with his life. It was extraordinary. And one of the problems I had with this book was to fit in the things that he had accomplished between two slabs of cardboard and call it a book. He was born in South Australia. He then moved to Adelaide. He got skills. He'd had all kinds of skills on the farm that he'd learned. How to start an engine was a key one. Cinematography was starting out, and his big breakthrough was when one of the engines to make the projector work broke down. He got it fixed, and he travelled with this travelling carnival. He then realised the potential of cinematography. The big deal in cinematography at that time was not fiction. It was non-fiction, newsreels, to see up front on a screen what an elephant looked like charging towards you or a lion or a war. Wilkins had the skills. He went to London. They sent him all over Europe. Then he got an opportunity to go to the Arctic to, to look to what we know as the Inuit, but were then known as the Eskimos, to look at how they lived. He was there for three years. He arrived as a photographer on an expedition led by an Icelandic American. So he was the 30th man out of 30. He ended up leading the expedition because when, when Stephenson went missing, he was the one that, that took over because he had all these leadership abilities. He then hears about the Great War. He gets back to Australia and they say, he says, I want to become a soldier. They said, well, you'll have to do a medical. Um, they had a look and said, no, your feet, your feet are buggered, mate. You can't be a soldier. He said, I've just walked 400 miles out of the Arctic. I think I'm okay. They said, you can be a photographer with Charles Bean at the Western Front. On occasion, puts down his camera and leads the men into battle. 
Sir John Monash, the great Australian general, was asked after the war. He said, George Hubert Wilkins was the bravest man in my command. He then goes down to Antarctica. He goes on an expedition to Russia, to Soviet Russia. He goes to across northern Australia. He then says, I think I can fly a plane from Alaska across the polar regions at the top of the world and land in Norway. He tried once and failed. He tried twice and failed on the third time he did it. He led the front page of the New York Times three days in a row. He then said, I think I can take a submarine under the polar ice cap. They said it couldn't be done. And in the first instance, they were correct. However, here's the thing, Greg. This guy who came from the back of beyond in South Australia, not, not desert, but not far off it, led such a life that when he died in 1958, the US submariner community got his ashes, a, a, a US nuclear submarine surfaced at the North Pole and scattered his ashes. So you think of the life of this guy to go from the back blocks of South Australia to have lived such a life that another nation would say, we'll take your ashes to the other end of the world and we'll scatter these ashes. I call him in the book in my intro, the Forrest Gump of history, because he had this uncanny knack of being there at the time when these extraordinary things happened. He was the only correspondent there for the famed Battle of villers Bretonneux, the only one there for the Battle of Hamel. He was there when Shackleton died. He was one of the last people to ever interview Vladimir Lenin. He was in Russia as a spy. He was the first one to look at the receding ice in the polar regions and go, something's missing here, what's, what's going on? Because he'd gone to Antarctica effectively 10 years apart. And the second time he goes, where's the ice? There used to be ice here. I can't land a plane on this. It used to be thick ice. It's receded. Something's not right. And one of his great passions was the need for the world to have weather stations at the, at the, in the Arctic and the Antarctic to understand the world's weather patterns to be able to predict droughts. He was a man ahead of his time. But in answer to the query of why this guy is not so much more famous than, than he is, when Monash said in the public domain, this is the bravest man in my command, he went to see him and he said, Sir John, please, I just, I just want to get on with my life. One of the most extraordinary things that I came across in your book was um, his willingness to engage with the Indigenous population. And that's one of the things that set him apart from a lot of the white settlers around him. As a boy, he hunted with the Najari tribe, he ate native foods. He was even invited as an honoured guest to a corroboree. Um, his view of Aboriginal culture seems to have been in direct contrast to the white standards of the day. That surely says something about that man. And it's fascinating. He... He had this quality, this particular quality, to live totally diverse experiences and in each experience to learn more skills. And he was a worker. You know, so he first showed up, you mentioned the tribe, not the, the Aboriginal people that were not far from where he was born and bred in South Australia. And the tragic truth of Australia, much of Australian history, particularly at that time, was the Indigenous people, the First Nations people, were regarded as a pest upon the land. I mean, there's shocking, shocking stories of those times. Massacres, genocides, awful. And yet Sir Hubert was looked at them and, and, and 
and thinks, well, they've lived here for a long time. They have skills that I don't, and I would like to learn them. And he did, and he learned some of their language. And that particular capacity, when he then saw the Inuit people in, in the northern regions of Canada for the first time and looked at how they lived, what are the skills they've got which will allow me to live like they do? And even though it's 30 degrees, 50 degrees below zero, how can I be comfortable? How can I live off, not live off the land, but live off the ice? And he, he had that capacity to pick up the skills as he went along. He seemed to have a great ability to engender trust and to build trust with people. And then also um, he appears to have been a great observer to bring up all those skills, to take on all those skills. He must have been a great observer of the world around him. Yes, yes. And an extraordinary intellect as well. I mean, I wrote when I wrote about Douglas Mawson, Mawson was the complete package in that he, when Mawson joined the expedition of Shackleton in 1907, again, exactly like Wilkins joining Stephenson's expedition, he was, I think Mawson was the 28th picked out of 30. And yet by the end of the expedition, he was one of Shackleton's main, main three men because he was physically robust. He was smart as a whip. He was a hard worker. He was easy to get on with. Uh, he was a team player for want of a better term. And that was, that was Sir Hubert Wilkins writ large. He was all of those things. Hubert Wilkins said, I'm going to fly across the top of the world. Amundsen was the one that said, can't be done, can't be done. No, no, he'll never do it. It's crazy. He'll die, he'll die, he'll die. Anyway, this was the thing. Our man Wilkins that had done it with Ben Arson. At one point, Amundsen looked at the calculations. So the navigational feat that Sir Hubert Wilkins had done on the maps to work out, deviate this way, deviate that way, the magnetic pole, the fiercely complicated mathematics that were involved at that point in compass bearings near to the North Pole would kill a brown dog. And when Amundsen looked at them, he said, this, this is not human. Basically, nobody can do calculations like this and land on sixpence uh, in Norway. And yet that's what was done. So he had this inquiring mind, this scientific inquiring mind. And in terms of his achievements, you know, one of the things I wrote, one of the biographies I wrote was Captain Cook. And it was an extraordinary story of a poor as a church mouse Englishman who ended up at his time seeing more uncharted coasts than anybody who'd ever lived. I mean, the world in the end was too small for Captain Cook, despite the fact totally acknowledging that a lot of it were native peoples, they'd seen their own coast. But in terms of who's seen the most of the world and that nobody, nobody has ever charted, let's call it charted, written down on a map, well, it, Captain James Cook would have been right there. But then we get to Hubert Wilkins. In terms of seeing a coastline that no human eyeballs had ever seen before, he was the guy because of what he saw flying across the Arctic and then the Antarctic as well. And his eyeballs were seeing things and seeing features that nobody had ever seen before. Hubert Wilkins had this irrepressible curiosity, it seems, and his fascination with the natural world seems to have been unlimited. He was entrusted by the British Museum to collect specimens of native animals and birds and, and even at one point photographed a fossil ichthyosaur at that time, he also took special care to record the precise location so that experts uh, in the field of paleontology could study that find. But that also suggests a great deal of good judgment, of, of foresight and care. Do you get the feeling that 
not that you were not only dealing with a person of great intelligence, but a person of extraordinary sensibilities. Very much so. Wasn't that an amazing story of him going across Northern Australia over a period of two years? And the tragic part of that is he was asked to do it by the British Museum. And at that point, so we're in the mid-1920s, we're only 135-odd years after colonisation. So the whitefellas have got to Australia and settled from 1788 on. Here we're only 135, 140 years later. And the British Museum is already coming to the conclusion they're wiping out, the whitefellas are wiping out species, plant species, animal species, bird species. We better collect these before they're gone. And it's really sobering reading because I think there was a particular parrot uh, that he saw in Queensland and it hadn't been spotted since the 1850s. And so, you know, only 60 or 70 years after white colonisation, we were having birds that were disappearing from the earth. I mean, he went to such remote places that he was effectively first contact for a lot of the Indigenous people. And there's one part there where it reminded me of the Bruce Pascoe controversy of how settled the Indigenous, the First Nations people were. But he talks about these mud huts that were basically, they weren't, they weren't nomadic. They were, these were solid structures that were built to last. And decorated, as I understand, too. Yes, indeed. As a final question to you, uh, you've written biographies and accounts of some of the most mythologised people and events in Australia's white history, including the Batavia, Birkin Wills, Ned Kelly, Gallipoli, and your writing style suggests that you have a deep engagement and enthusiasm for those individuals. Do the legends and the myths get in the way of the facts at times? And, and how do you navigate a path between or around those through the use of researchers. So I, as you'll appreciate, the way I like to do my books is to make it feel like fiction. And what I want, however, is not to have the account of a dry historian, a dry historical account at least, but I want the reader to be in the moment. But I want to back it up with 2,000 footnotes to say this is not conversation I pulled out of my ass. This is goes to an original document, mostly found by you know one of my researchers in archives and the rest of it, and in this case, in Wilkins' own accounts in various spots. And so what I want is to do so much research, you dig down, you dig down, and you see conflicting accounts of what happened And what I have, I have very smart researchers who frequently have heated conversations about what actually happened. And I'm the arbiter, the judge, if you like, to say, well, no, I reckon Libby makes a a very strong argument here. And I I believe that's what happened. And so you, you try to cut through the mythology and get to the core of what happened. One of the books I've just completed is on the Opera House. And again, huge controversy. You know, was Jorn Utzon uh, a genius? Was he incompetent? What was he? Who, who was most to blame for the fact that he resigned and went back to Denmark? Well, it took me a lot to get to what I think is the truth, but I don't do it on this brain. I do it on several brains, all working together to try to work out what happened. One of my researchers brought to my attention the fact that when Cook landed at Botany Bay, his way was blocked by two very brave Indigenous warriors, and they were holding shields. And he brought to me the account that Cook had fired, first fired a musket between them and then fired a musket at one of them. And I said, can't be true, cannot be true. I I cannot believe that that happened. 
And he said, well, here's, here's the account. Here's first Cook's account. Here's the account of other people that were with him. This is what happened. And it was, it was incontrovertible. It was that's what happened. And when I put it out there, I was contacted by several journalists saying, well, this can't, this can't have happened. We would have known about it. I said, bloody oath it happened. I, and I feel the same as you. How is it we don't know this? And the tragic truth is, the reason we don't know it is that even though it had been covered, and there was particular account, the most definitive account was in 1965. The tragic truth is, at that point, White fella shoots black fella. Tragically, in 1965, well, that's what they did. Changing sensibilities in 2019, 2020, when I was doing it, was he what? He actually shot before setting foot on, on Australian continent. He actually shot the first Indigenous man that he saw. And it wasn't to kill him at all. It was sort of like birdshot. But it was still breathtaking to me. And so that's one of the virtues of researchers to turn over new stuff and to establish that this is what happened. Certainly times have changed and it seems like this is Hubert Wilkins' time. So Peter Fitzsimons, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. I've been talking to Peter Fitzsimons about his latest book, The Incredible Life of Hubert Wilkins, Australia's Greatest Explorer. It's published by Hachette and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.